To miss joy is to miss all. To miss joy is to miss all. These beautiful words are found in Robert Stevenson's essay, The Lantern Bearers. And today marks the fifth Sunday of Easter, a time that we use to anchor ourselves in joy. Easter reminds us that to miss joy is to miss all because the foundation of the Christian message is a joyful one. As a church, we're aspiring to become prophets of joy. The prophet Isaiah is showing us that joy has a prophetic nature. It's a gift from God to us for the sake of the world, that God's joy is shared And it's given to us, and we're meant to share it with others. And if we don't, our joy will be incomplete. So far, we've been focusing mostly on how we feel when we receive this joy, the feeling of joy, the taste of joy, the touch of joy. And in the next two sermons after this one, we'll talk more about the things that we do and how that relates to joy, because joy isn't meant to just be experienced in an isolated bubble of happy feelings for ourselves but it's meant to be shared with the world and that our joy actually depends to a degree on the extent in which we join God in what he's doing here and now in the world. Joy is related to seeking justice and righteousness in the world. Joy is related to seeing all of the nations come to know God. In the series so far, I hope you've noticed there's been a logical progression. In the first week, we talked about the practices of lamenting and repent, uh, repent, repentance. And We have to mourn the state of our souls and the state of the world. The extent to which we allow ourselves to feel pain is the extent to which we can feel joy. In the second week, we focused on the other part of repentance, belief. And we re-announced the good news of the gospel. We remembered that salvation intersects with each of our souls, that through Christ's wounds we're healed, but through his resurrection, he is also reconciling every square inch of the cosmos to himself. And these ongoing practices of repentance and belief cultivate the posture in us to receive joy. We looked at this last week. That meekness and humility is the posture by which we receive joy. As God promised through Isaiah, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. But what is this fresh joy in the Lord? I'm convinced that the fresh joy comes as we anchor ourselves in who God has made us to be. And that's our big idea this morning. The identity that roots us in joy. The identity that roots us in joy. So if you have a Bible, please open it up to Isaiah chapter 62. I'm convinced this is one of the most exciting chapters in the entire Bible. If you don't have a Bible, everything's going to be on the screen. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, grab one of our great Bibles. It's yours. Take it home with you. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 1. Isaiah writes, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Let's start with this question. Who is speaking? We have to backtrack a chapter to Isaiah 61, verse 1. We read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. A couple hundred years later, Jesus is in a synagogue. These words are read, and he says, Today, these words are fulfilled in your midst. Jesus says, These words are about me. Isaiah 61 is a poem. 
a joyful poem that celebrates how God's salvation will renew everything, every piece and fabric of all of creation, including us. And Jesus says, I wrote this poem. And this poem, it actually continues into chapter 62. And we see that this is not just a poem that Christ says to Israel or those who join themselves to Israel, but it's a poem to be declared to the whole world. Jesus is reciting a poem of salvation. And he says, for Zion's sake, for Jerusalem's sake, which is two ways of saying the same thing, for my people's sake, I will not keep silent. I will not be quiet. God cries through Jesus, enough. You know, Israel, as we've looked at in Isaiah so far, they've been estranged from God. They've faced terrible consequences. Their culture has been eroded. Lives have been ruined. Um, They've been driven into exile and lost their homes. Joy is dissipating. And this has been an act of judgment from God. He says, just as you've forsaken me, I forsake you. And he does it because of their faithful, faithlessness. They do, he does it because of their endorsement of injustice. He does it because of their indifference to other people's suffering. But now God cries out, no more. God will be unrelenting. As some people say, he can't stop, won't stop. He will speak and act until Israel's righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. In other words, God's saying, Gather all the kindling, all the wood, all the paper. Stack it up. Build it high. Cover it in gasoline if you're fire inept. Light it up. Let it burn brightly. A burning torch for all to see. God wants everybody to see what he's going to do. And it'll attract the attention of every king, every nation, every person. It will be a light in their darkness, light in the midst of gloom. But what are they going to see exactly? What's burning so brightly? Well, look at verse 2. You shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. God will not stop. He will not be quiet. He will not be silent until the total transformation of his people, until they receive their new name. You see, they're no longer going to be defined by their failure, their lack of distinction from the world, or even their sins. God will rename them. He will redefine them by his righteousness and salvation. And then the poem continues in verse 3. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. If you're less intelligent like me, diadem is just another way of saying crown. Uh, And I, I got curious about crowns, and so I looked it up. One of the crown jewels of the United Kingdom is the imperial state crown. And it symbolizes the sovereignty of the monarch. And it's rarely worn. You know, it's worn at coronation ceremonies, which Queen Elizabeth shows us takes place like once every hundred years. Uh, And worn at the annual state opening of parliament. That's the only time it's worn. And the crown's frame is made of gold and silver and platinum and decorated with 2,868 diamonds. It also has 273 pearls, 17 sapphires, 11 emeralds, five rubies, and it weighs close to three pounds. Poor little Elizabeth's head. This is an extravagant crown made of the best of the best materials. And when the queen wears it, it demonstrates her authority. It demonstrates her sovereignty. It shows who she is. She's the queen. Sit down, pinkies out, drink your tea. 
take it to heart then. God calls his people a crown of beauty, a royal diadem. He's calling us treasure. My eldest daughter, Ansley, uh, has become fascinated with makeup and jewelry. And last year, I was officiating a wedding and we had some time to kill uh, between the wedding and the reception. I brought Julia and the girls with me. And so we thought, they're not going to make it to dinner. Let's find them a snack. And like any good parent, we took them to the Golden Arches, heavenly land of McDonald's. And uh, when we stopped and I got out to get Ansley out of the car, I discovered her like this, uh, her face and arms covered in lipstick, which is very difficult to get off. And she looked at me with this face and said, don't I look beautiful, Daddy? And I said, of course you do. Another time, I came upstairs and Ansley had found her way into Julia's makeup bag and got Julia's perfume and had sprayed herself about a hundred times. And she said to me, don't I smell beautiful, Daddy? I said, of course you do. The next day I was napping and she sprayed me about a hundred times and I woke up and she says, you smell beautiful, Daddy. Just the other day, though, Ansley just about, I mean, she had a total meltdown because she couldn't find her favorite necklace. And she wouldn't go out of the house. She said, I can't go out of the house without my favorite necklace. I must wear my necklace. I won't be beautiful without my necklace. And I, look, I can handle her wearing too much lipstick. I can handle her using perfume like a frat boy. But this went too far. And so I looked her in the eyes. I said, Ansley, you're beautiful. Lipstick, perfume, even jewelry, they just accentuate your beauty. They don't make you beautiful. And she looked at me square on in the eyes and said, I know, where is my necklace? <laughs> God declares that his people are a crown of beauty, a royal diadem. In other words, they accentuate the Lord's beauty and authority and power. It's crazy. God will take people like us, imperfect people, full of errors and flaws, and we're his diamonds and pearls and sapphires and emeralds. God will take us and somehow we accentuate his beauty. And when he wears us, we're going to be a sign to all the world that he's the true king of the universe. But we're more like Ansley. You know, and the way she uses makeup and perfume than we are like the imperial state crown. You know, we know our mess. We know that our smell can be overwhelming. Does God just look like a hot mess when he's wearing us? Or like a child pretending that plastic jewels are really pearls? As you might recall from our first week, God has called Israel a whore. Estranged from him. Totally faithless. Ruined by their abandonment of him. They don't highlight that he's king. If anything, they've truncated that he's king. They're trying to overthrow him as king. How is it that God can adorn himself with people like us. But that's the beauty of salvation. Those who become a part of God's crown recognize that they do it by no part of their own. They can't make themselves right with God. There's no salvation in themselves. If you want to get into gender stereotypes for a minute, because that's fun, a diamond is a girl's best friend. A diamond is a girl's best friend. But how a diamond shines really depends on a lot of things. And I've discovered it depends on its cut, its color, its clarity, and your bank account, which they call carrots. But let's focus on cut, color, and clarity. The cut. The diamond needs to be cut in just the right proportions for it to refract and disperse light. 
And the best diamonds, they're colorless because if there's any hint of color, it'll dim and distort the quality of the light. And for maximum clarity, there has to be no inclusions, which are minor imperfections. If there are, it'll affect the transparency and the brilliance of the light. If you're looking to buy a diamond, clearly I'm the guy to talk to you now, but diamonds are set apart by cut, color, and clarity. This determines how light shines through them. And it's the same with us. You see, if we come to God thinking that we have something to offer God, that we have some sort of moral righteousness or a slate that will be impressive to him, if we think that God owes us something, we're not the right cut. We're going to distort and bend and disrupt the light from shining through us. If we think we're morally pure, that we've got it all together, we are actually distorting the color that God wants in us. He won't shine brightly through us. God knows we're full of minor imperfections, aren't we? That bend and twist and distort the light. So all we see is darkness. But a good jewel is not actually what's sparkling. It's the light that reflects and refracts. A perfect diamond is one that is mostly transparent. And that's how we become beautiful in the Lord. You see, when we're cut with the disciplines of repentance and belief, this gives us the right angles for the light of God to shine brilliantly through us. And when these disciplines cultivate humility in us, it gives us the right color. Because we're not concerned with ourselves, we're concerned with the Lord. We want him to shine brightly through us, less of us and more of him. But the beautiful part of salvation is that God wants our imperfections. He wants our little inclusions. He wants it so that when our brokenness flares up, he says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. He likes our uniqueness. If we're going to be diamonds in God's crown, we have to let him work through us. We have to let him remake us as our maker to give us the right cut, color, and clarity. When he wears us as a crown, he's going to draw attention to his salvation and righteousness, not our own. Because that's the purpose of a crown. To accentuate the power and authority and beauty of the one wearing it. But the other beautiful thing is that God shares his salvation and righteousness with us, so much so that it becomes our own. Look at verse 2. The nations, Jesus says, see your righteousness and all the kings your Glory. The salvation and righteousness that God imparts to us is so full and total that we can declare it our own because we're so focused on him and not ourselves. The poem continues, and it gets better still. Look at verse 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. God's people, they receive a new name. And this is a fundamental identity shift. It is such a transformation that we can only speak in terms of old and new. In the old identity, we read, was forsakenness in the land of desolation. Forsakenness in the land of desolation. This was life without God. And in this life, we may know some love, but at best it was imperfect love. It was inconsistent love. It was selfish love. It was love that sometimes uh, withdrew from one another or love that forsakes one another and even love that divorces. 
If you forsake someone, it means you abandon them, you desert them, you renounce them, you forget them. And when this happens, when someone is forsaken for bad or just reasons, it can create shame. Because the question that happens in response isn't just what did I do wrong, but also what's wrong with me? Fossum and Mason, in their book, Facing Shame, write, while guilt is a painful feeling of regret and responsibility for one's actions, shame is a painful feeling about oneself as a person. And when we carry shame, it impacts everything. It changes the way we relate to ourselves, the way we relate to our friends and our family, the way we even relate to the world around us, because shame is erosive. It acts as this spiritual and cognitive wall which can prevent us from believing that we really are lovable. It can prevent us from even knowing love. And we unwittingly, in a place of shame, start projecting our own feelings of ourselves onto God. I'm not lovable. God cannot possibly love me. I deserve to be forsaken. God must have forsaken me. There is no way I'm a part of his crown. How do we get out of this old cycle of shame and into this new identity? A trauma therapist I know uh, who eats way too many sour keys uh, says, clinically, academically, or spiritually, I don't know if anything other than the love of God can break shame. Do you hear what she's saying? This is someone I know personally who meets with people who've been through horrific trauma and crippling shame. So the only thing that can really break it is the love of God. And in this passage, we read that God, in the face of shame, in the face of forsakenness, he declares, no more, you shall not be called forsaken. The forsaken people who were ashamed of themselves, who dwelt in this land of desolation, they receive a new name. My delight is in her. And they will now dwell in the land of married. This is our new identity in the old, in the life without God. The best we can do is affirm ourselves. The best we can do is try to talk ourselves up. The best resources we have are positive psychology, which can help. But in the new, God delights in us. He talks us up. Can you imagine? Is this your view of God? A steady, unrelenting delight in who you are. A God who rejoices over you. A God who chooses you. A God who wants you. A God who desires you. A God who delights in being with you. You. Not the future version of yourself, the one that is all sorted out, but you as you are in this chair right now. And if you don't believe me, look at verse 5. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I don't know if we can comprehend this. I really don't. But I do know that we can experience it. Now, if I can be honest with you, if we can have some real talk uh, for a minute, I used to not like weddings. Now, before you're quick to judge me, I want to be clear. I liked my own wedding. I just didn't like your wedding. And I'm not saying this was good. <laughs> but I would find any excuse whatsoever to get out of going to weddings and it would drive Julia batty. And then I got ordained and became a pastor and found myself having to officiate weddings. And I figured it would be a great disservice to someone if I didn't find something to appreciate about weddings. So I had to reevaluate my beliefs. 
I had to search for something redemptive in the wedding. And I found it, my favorite, motive, my favorite moment of every wedding. It's when the bride is revealed and she begins walking down the aisle and all the eyes are on her. And it doesn't matter who it is, she'll walk with radiance and her beauty is accentuated by the moment. But I also get an up-close and personal look at the eyes of the groom who sees the bride for the first time. And sometimes there's tears, but there's always a noticeable and breathtaking joy, both in his face and her face. The joy is profound and it's priceless and it makes me want to go to weddings. Isaiah says, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. If you've ever seen that moment at a wedding, that's exactly how God looks at you. But in a sense, what I've just described is young love. Most people at weddings look their best. They dress up. You know, it's not yet in the phase of sweatpants and the bathroom door left open. Uh, <laughs> so let's consider Bill and Bertie Nickerson. They were married for 80 years until Bill passed away about a year and a half ago. And they lived in the same brick house in Liverpool, Nova Scotia. And Bill reflected in an interview on the first time he ever saw Bertie when he was, I think, 17. He says, she came down these stairs and I said, it's heaven. She must have come from heaven. How sweet is that? And they were asked, what made 80 years of marriage work? And Bertie replied, he looks at me and he says, I'm so glad you're here. And Bill added, I wouldn't trade her for the world. I love her every minute. That's mature love. They still rejoice in each other. They haven't grown tired of each other's presence. They've seen it all for better or for worse. They know that love is an action that requires work and yet love remains and rejoicing remains and gladness remains. God's love has the intensity of young love and the endurance of mature love. God's eyes light up. They light up when he sees you. And he's glad in your presence. And his love for you will not tire out. Nothing you can do can make him love you more. Nothing you can do can make him love you less. He loves you to the maximum infinite potential in every moment. God rejoices over his people. He delights over his people, which means God rejoices over you. God delights in you. You're his crown. And he will not forsake you. And he cannot forsake you. And this is the identity that roots us in joy. This is the identity that roots us in joy. Being the beloved. Being the beloved. And it undoes the cycle of shame that we can get stuck in in our old identities. Because even in your place of shame, God loves you. Consider what Paul says in Romans 5. I'm going to condense it just a little bit. But Romans 5, Paul writes, While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Think about what Paul's saying. While we were weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies. God loved us even then. His logic is how much more 
is available to us now that we're reconciled with him. And when this becomes your core identity, when you realize that you can't outrun the love of God, that there is no depth you can go and no height you can go to explore it, when this becomes your core identity, it's pure joy. It's pure joy. Which is why the great spiritual theologian and author, Brennan Manning, writes, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. Define yourself as one radically beloved by God. And when this settles into our bones, when we say, God, help my unbelief, help me believe this, we move from the old and into the new. We taste joy and it enlivens our souls. It frees us and it blesses us. And then the poem all of a sudden returns to where it started. Look at verse six and seven. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Just as God won't be silent and can't be silent until salvation transforms every square inch, he says, you too are invited not to be quiet, not to be silent. We're called, as one saint in my community group put it, to be joyful nuisances, to be joyful nuisances. As Paul advocates in many of his letters, our prayers, they're to be ceaseless, day and night. We're called to take no rest. We're called to pester the Lord and give him no rest until he finishes this great work of salvation. We're to pray and pray and pray until his praise covers the earth. And you're given permission, do you see, to annoy God. You can annoy God with your requests to see all things made new. And mysteriously, this brings him pleasure. And if we jump ahead to verse 12, we read, They shall be called the holy people the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. You see, we pray to see unholy people made holy, unredeemed people redeemed, to see salvation impact souls, but also renew the face of the earth and the entire universe. Because when Christ returns, we have the promise, he will make all things new. But do you see? We're starting to get the glimmers that joy is shared, that joy isn't just a feeling in our souls, but it's joining God in the work he's doing in the world, the great work of salvation. It's joy to experience our identity in the Lord, but it's also joy to see other people experience. It's joy to see cultural systems renewed. It's joy to see nations come to know the Lord. This core work, if we're going to add anything to the disciplines of repentance and belief, which are the core disciplines of the kingdom of God, the core disciplines that open us up to eternal joy. If we're going to add one more thing, one more piece of work, it would be prayer. I know of no other way to access our identity in Christ except by prayer. Prayer is the greatest force for joy. Because God is the source of joy. We're told that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. You abide with Christ and you're given joy. And so when we draw near to God in prayer, we are opening the floodgates to joy. 
and a desire to have this joy, to say, I don't have this joy, I want this joy, that keeps us praying ceaselessly every day. And even when we struggle to pray or find the words, because I know some of you right now, you're thinking, I need to start praying more. I need to go home and pray better. I haven't been praying well enough. I need to pray more. We all feel that. The moment a pastor speaks about prayer, I feel that way. But we have this great promise in Romans. The Spirit helps us in weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Have you ever had a bad day and you just went, ugh, amen? That's what Paul's saying. Paul is saying that the Spirit of God who dwells in us when we believe in Christ is ceaselessly praying for us. And we're invited to simply join him in that work. God is a joyful God, full of delight, who wants to share his joy with you. And the same spirit that rests upon Jesus rests upon you. So do not stop asking until the Lord grants you this joy. Do not stop praying until you see others experiencing it too. Don't stop praying until you see the redemption of the entire earth when the desolate lands are finally married and filled with people who know the delight and the joy of the Lord. The best news, the best news is that this does not rest on your shoulders. The Spirit of God was upon Christ to preach this good news to proclaim to us through his death and resurrection that although we were forsaken, he chooses us. Although we had shame, he accepts us. Although we were guilty, we're forgiven. Although we were separated, we're now united. Although we were unworthy, we are now a jewel in his crown. You were helpless, but now you are saved. If you don't have this joyful relationship with God, whether you felt like it's just this stoic relationship you have with him, or whether you've never really said all I know of me to all I know of Jesus. This joy can be yours. Repentance and belief is all that it takes. Repent, not just of your personal sins, but change your mind and believe in this good news. Because this good news imparts joy. And if you want to learn more about that, I'd love to talk to you. Because God won't stop and he can't stop. He can't remain quiet or silent until his righteousness and salvation shines so brightly through his people that all of the world sees it and rejoices. We're going to be the city not forsaken when the new creation comes. And so we pray the ancient prayer that we see the early church praying in Scripture. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We want this joy. We want this new creation. We want to taste it here and now. So come, Lord Jesus, 